With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, MLS Commissioner Don Garber joins me at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, for a discussion on the league with a focus on technology, including the present and future of Facebook-hosted streaming rights and the transformative move ahead this season to adopt video assistant referees. If we can do it as it's been tested really, really fast, less than two minutes, we ought to be able to make the game better. Red cards, goals, if there is an offside leading to a goal, it can be called, and things that I believe actually fans deserve. All that and my thoughts on soccer coming up. Take one. Here we go with my three thoughts on soccer. First up, MLS expansion team Minnesota United is bad. Really bad. Like Chivas USA 2005 bad. Last October, I got a mailbag question from a reader asking for an over-under on Minnesota wins this season. I wrote, quote, Part of me wants to wait until we see the players Minnesota United puts on the field next spring, but I make a lot of calls around MLS, and I can't tell you how many coaches, GMs, and agents there are who are saying Minnesota in its first year might be one of the worst teams in MLS history on the field. End quote. I put the over-under on Minnesota wins this season at 5. You might want to take the under. Minnesota has lost its first two games 5-1 and 6-1. Their defending is abysmal. It's a long season, but changes need to happen now. These fans deserve better. Take two. Next up. Too often we fall victim to what's called recency bias. The human tendency to say what we've just seen is the greatest ever. But I'm going to come out and say it. Last Wednesday was the greatest UEFA Champions League day ever for a viewer in the United States. Two high-stakes elimination games and two remarkable storylines. First, Barcelona's unprecedented comeback from a 4-0 first-leg deficit, including three goals in the last seven minutes, was one of the best sports moments I've ever seen. And then there was Christian Pulisic, an 18-year-old American, scoring the decisive goal to secure Borussia Dortmund's advancement to the quarterfinals. In soccer, there are so many games that it's easy to look ahead to the next big thing. But let's take a moment and look back to last Wednesday, which was something no soccer fan in the U.S. will ever forget. Take three. Finally, this week's interview comes from South by Southwest in Austin, where I sat down on Saturday with MLS Commissioner Don Garber in front of a packed house to have a conversation about the league. Things move so fast in this league that there were a bunch of important new topics we discussed that didn't come up during my last sit-down interview with Garber for the pod in early December. I think you'll enjoy this one. Here's my interview at South by Southwest with Don Garber. I wanted to start by asking you about something in the news which came out yesterday, which is that Facebook is going to show MLS games starting very soon, next week, 
and ask you how that came about and how that's going to work and what it might mean for your league to be one of the first ones to be involved with this. Well, it's uh, very timely. I think it was in today's uh, Wall Street Journal. Uh, you know, it came about uh, proactively, Grant. So um, our television uh, broadcast rights and the ability for those uh, broadcasters to stream games live with Fox, ESPN, and Univision. Univision airs those games in Spanish, and the SAP function provides them in English. And uh, sort of on a, on a parallel path, we were, had our all-star game up in San Jose, and like all leagues, we did the Silicon Valley road trip and uh, spent some time uh, with Facebook. I have a, a guy named Dan Reed who runs sports there, who's an ex-NBA guy, came, actually was the commissioner of the NBDL. Okay and uh, has the job to run uh, their sports product. Twitter at the same time has a guy that's an ex-NFL CFO, Anthony Noto, who is uh, their COO and running their sort of video business, if you will. And we're all the leagues are sort of trying to figure out how can we can continue to have our games uh, available on as many platforms as possible, but we're restricted by what our agreements are. We were able to find a very unique way to extend uh, Univision's relationship with us and provide those games via Facebook in English language. Uh, there'll be 22 games, so we'll have, be, I think, the first league to have an extended package on Facebook, and it gives us the opportunity to really see how all these new platforms, and that's what we're all here in Austin, at least on the sports side, thinking a lot about, how they can uh, work for us. What will the quality of the broadcast be? Uh, will more people engage with uh, Facebook then perhaps would engage, at least in this case, on the SAP function uh, on their traditional um, uh, televisions or whatever uh, platform they're watching those games. Uh, and I also think it's a good way for Facebook to put their toe deeper in the water, which as a sports league, and we are in the business of selling our rights, it drives the economic engine of professional sports. And as all this, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, shifts and evolves uh, as the cable model changes, as broadcasters like your own start thinking about what are their revenue models going to look like, where does subscription and ad revenue kind of come together or go apart, where do new platforms come into play. Uh, you got to be in the business. So we were very focused. It is a coincidence that it was announced right before I'm here. We'd worked, hoped to get it done before the start of the year, but we're very excited about it. By the way, you guys will get your own chance uh, with about 15 minutes left to ask questions. Um, also, I think it's really cool. The last time we did a conversation like this publicly was at uh, the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in Boston, which was great, but I think it was like a 98% male audience. And this, there's a little more gender equality here, which is good. Um, but I want to ask you about what this could mean post-2022, because your current rights deal with television channels, networks, goes through 2022. Whether it's you guys or whether it's other sports leagues, how realistic is the possibility that a Facebook or a Google or an Apple might actually really drop a ton of money on sports rights at some point, maybe post-2022? So I think it's a two-part question and a two-part answer. One is, will those uh, uh, 
entities be active bidders for pro sports rights in 22, I believe absolutely. Now, whether or not they'll drop a lot of money is still to be seen. And I think the, the uh, you know, the, the, the ball sort of stops at the, the top of the hill when it rolls down, and we'll see where MLS is on that hill uh, in 2022. Uh, but I, I, I say this to a lot to, to our own owners. You know, the whole, the economics of professional sports have been driven in many ways by, and I say this to John Skipper if he was sitting here, uh, by the irrationality of broadcasters uh, paying for sports rights because they're trying to achieve certain objectives. It might be to keep, have people stay on their platforms. It might be to have that particular channel have more value on a cable system. And I think for the first time in my 30 plus years in sports, it's all uh, dramatically being disrupted. And all of you are living with that and might be working with it, engaged in that, or have companies that are trying to do that. And the economic model that's been dri driving uh, the economics of professional sports, I believe in 22, will be different. And that's going to affect everybody because that irrationality, by the way, gets passed through to our athletes. And one could argue that we irrationally pay our athletes, whether here or abroad. So as all of that continues to evolve, we all need to see how does that impact our business? How will it affect our collective bargaining agreement, which is up in 2019, a couple of years before our television deals are done? Uh, I was working out this morning here in the hotel and on my life cycle, I tried to get uh, ESPN or Fox on, uh, as I like to do when I'm working out in the morning. And before I got there, there was a button for next Netflix and for Hulu. Hmm. And there was a button for ESPN. When I pressed it, it didn't go to their channel. It went to their homepage. And that's not because we're here in Austin. That's Lifecycle's new approach for what they're trying to do to engage those that are working out uh, on that particular machine. When you turn on your television, it's as easy for me to go. My my smart TV to go to Netflix as it is for me to go to my, my cable system. And all that is going to come to uh, a head, uh, I think, sooner than our agreement. One thing that all of you should know that the, the traditional sports leagues' rights agreements are up in 22 and beyond. So we, I think we might be the first major league uh, that will renew of the five major leagues within this uh, time period. Okay. Now, your 2017 season in MLS just started last weekend, uh, 11 more games this weekend, but there's one technological thing that's going to happen, as far as I'm told, this summer, which as a soccer person to me is one of the most fascinating changes that we've seen in the game ever, and that is video assistant refereeing. And I wanted to get your take on it. I assume you're a big supporter also, if you could explain a little bit about how it works, or I can help out with that, too. <laughs> you probably know more about it, technology <laughs> of it than I do. Uh, you know, you've, you've told me when we started I have to give short answers so that we don't <laughs> blow through our hour. But I think it, it's important to, um, to sort of start with, I, did, I came into this job not being a soccer guy. And when I was working at the NFL and Robert Kraft came up to me and they had a commissioner for two years or so, and they were thinking of making a change, and they asked me what I knew about soccer, and I said, not a whole lot. And he said, great, you'd be a great commissioner. They thought they would probably be able to push me around. And, but, um, and I'm sorry, I'm going to take me a while to get it, Grant, but it's in interesting stuff, and, and I think it'll be a better answer. Uh, when the league was founded, it was founded by a bunch of NFL guys and a guy named Alan Rothenberg, who ran the World Cup in 94. 
And there was a view, though the World Cup was very successful, that Americans would not be able to engage at the numbers required uh, with a game that had low scoring and had unique rules. So they came in and they had uh, shootouts, uh, which hockey now has and I think is exciting, but certainly is non-traditional, though FIFA's actually been talking about bringing that back. The clock ran differently. There were all sorts of things that were just so different than the way the game was played. And I remember sitting there in my first kind of few weeks in the job as everybody has a 90-day plan, and I'm thinking about our whole point of difference is we're playing the beautiful game, we're playing it in America, we think we could be a league for a new America, and yet we had different rules. We're almost, like we're admitting that we don't think that people living in this country will support the sport. So the first thing I did was change the rules. And I obviously have become very engaged over the near 20 years in the sport, but I've always believed that we are playing the world's game in our North American sort of landscape, now the US and Canada. And we have to adapt the way the North American sports fan consumes their sports. And I believe the lack of technology uh, was unfair to the fan. I don't mean changing the rules, uh, but if you're watching a, a sporting event, as probably people here in this room will uh, troll us on social media and complain about officials because they're not good enough, why not at least have the kind of technology that every other sport in our region is able to take advantage of? And we fought with IFAB and we fought with FIFA, and then there's a, a change in the administration, and all of a sudden IFAB and FIFA are leading the charge. And it's very simple. There's going to be a video assisted referee who will be, or a video referee will be on the sidelines in a little bit of a bread box, and they'll get the feed, and they'll have all sorts of camera angles. And if that official sees that Diego Char in Portland is elbowing a guy in the head, the official misses it because he's blocked, uh, then maybe that should be a red card. He stops the game very quickly, and they call that red card in this particular exhibition game. The other team scored a goal. So not only was, and Chara was thrown out of the game. And if we can do it as it's been tested really, really fast, less than two minutes, we ought to be able to make the game better. Red cards, goals, if there is an offside leading to a goal, it can be called. And things that I believe actually fans deserve. If you're watching the game on your smartphone, which you can, and you see something happening, and the referee's the only guy in the building who knows that, who doesn't know what happened, just doesn't seem right. We wanted to get it done by the beginning of the year. We couldn't. We're one of the few leagues that are testing it. It was tested in the minor leagues. It'll be enacted right after our All-Star game. And it's not going to be without big problems, because it still has a referee making a judgment. Now he's just assisted with video. And it's limited, right? You can't, as a coach, issue a challenge flag like in some other sports. Right. Okay. Can't do that, and we're going to really struggle with the sort of the local way we consume sports in that, you know, we're not going to be able to talk to the, the crowd about it. We're not going to be able to put the videos up uh, on, on the big screen because FIFA has issues with that. Uh, we have one of our owners, a guy named Peter Guber, who I'm sure has been here. Peter is a leading, leading uh, thought, a thought leader in the professional sports business and now in, in eSports. And we had a board meeting and we were telling him that we weren't going to be able to put the video on. And he was saying, you know, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. How could you do this and not tell people about it? So I think it ultimately will evolve, Grant. Ultimately, it's going to be like it is in the other leagues. And maybe there could be a challenge. I'm looking forward to it just as a soccer person about how often currently it is that we 
argue about calls after a game impacting a game that everyone saw live on their television at home, and we're hopefully not going to have as many of those conversations. Yeah, I think we had, uh, in this test, we had about a dozen or 20 different plays, and uh, four of them were uh, actually, you know, red card offenses that were called, or penalty kicks that were called, if not red cards. So I think you're seeing 20% of the plays actually happen that are really dramatically impacting the game. You know, I, uh, you know, I'm obviously part of the global game and have to, I'm on the board of U.S. soccer and have to spend time with FIFA. It always frustrated me that they did not understand how technology is sort of uh, allowing the fan, the player, our technical people to get better, and yet we can't use it in the games that actually would make the experience better. So, uh, you know, we have a goal, we have a camera in goals that when ESPN does a game, they actually bring the, a different goal in and there's a camera embedded in that, uh, in that goal post. I'd like to put microphones in the field that can be, you know, the size of a quarter. And why would we not want to pick up some of the great audio that you're seeing in every other sport? Uh, and I think with new leadership at FIFA, they're younger. I think they're, some of them came from UEFA, which is a, you know, aggressive and ambitious property you know, hopefully we'll be able to have a lot more technology in our sport. You mentioned FIFA and the changes there. FIFA's reputation globally and in the United States in the wake of the FIFA scandal and the U.S. Department of Justice investigation is it's not high, We're, <laughs> really? uh, which is putting it mildly. Um, what have you seen in the last year since the new changes at FIFA came in since Johnny Infantino took over. Are you seeing enough? Is, is this something that encourages you? I am encouraged because change is good and recognizing that you have issues is the place that, uh, that, that FIFA kind of is at today. And then with new staff and new general secretary, new governance, uh, they're doing some things to try to be better. Uh, their brand was damaged and there's no question about that. Uh, and I am hopeful uh, that we'll be able to see a new approach coming out of Zurich. But it is a complicated uh, uh, dynamic. You know, you have 209 countries that all have to come together and make decisions, and the smallest country has the same governance right or decision power as the largest country. It's hard to manage uh, decision-making that way. Uh, Gianni's a, a guy that I think understands that... Uh, in order to get FIFA to be perceived differently and govern the game differently, uh, they have to make decisions differently and they have to manage cleaning up all of the challenges that they've had up and down uh, the pyramid uh, with real vigor. And I remain hopeful uh, that, that we're gonna see a different uh, level of transparency and hopefully some uh, focus on, uh, on better governance. I was going to ask this later, but I'll ask it now since we're on the topic of FIFA. Uh, a lot of people think the U.S. is going to bid for and win the rights to host the World Cup for 2026. Do you see that happening? Well, I, again, two-part question. I do see us bidding, uh, and whether or not we win, we'll still uh, uh, need to see that process work itself out. I was very involved in the 2010 process to bid for 22, and was deeply frustrated uh, about how all of that went down and ultimately we'll have to wait 
at least another four years to have the opportunity to bring the World Cup back here. Uh, there is a, a positive development in that FIFA's made the decision that they're going to alternate the World Cup around, and it really is our turn. So CONCACAF is really a front runner to get the World Cup. Uh, there's been lots of talk about Mexico and Canada joining with the United States. I'm supportive of that. Mm. I think it represents a way for our region to show the rest of the world that we could put on a World Cup that will be the best ever and for the rest of time, and I'll believe that, I believe that we'll be able to deliver that. Uh, it's very real time. You know, you know Sunil Gulati very well. Sunil's going to lead the charge, uh, both hopefully for the U.S., but also for CONCACAF. We have a new president of CONCACAF who uh, is very focused on trying to bring it here. So uh, let's see. It's our time. Um, I want to ask you about your league. You've just started the 2017 season. What do you see as the big storylines for you heading into this season? Well, it's very much about growth. Uh, last weekend, we opened our league with 55,000 people in Atlanta, which was not something we would have predicted. Uh, we opened up a new stadium in Orlando that was one of the more emotional and inspiring uh, days as, uh, for, as commissioner for me, uh, for all sorts of great reasons about that city and its energy, and our team is the focal point of trying to bring, bring that community together. Uh, we, uh, we broke ground on a new uh, stadium in D.C. that took us 20 years uh, to get uh, up and going, and I'll be leaving here and going up through Houston tonight and then to Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul, uh, for a, a game. Right now it's five degrees in Minnesota. Hopefully it'll be a little warmer. Not a lot. <laughs> uh, so we'll have our, our 22nd team uh, open up in Minnesota. So, Grant, it's really been a, a lot of really positive growth for our sport and our league, and it, it just is driven by people who love the game, who grew up with the game and are connected with it. A lot of investors that have really gone very long. Anthony Precorder sitting here owns the Columbus Crew is an example of one of those broadcasters, Fox is here in the room, that, and, and somebody like yourself that just believe. And if you believe in this cause of being a great soccer nation, I think our league and our sport is uh, limitless in terms of what we could uh, achieve together. It's pretty incredible what's happened to MLS. From my perspective, I started covering the league in 1996, the first season, and to see where it is now, um, it's night and day. Um, would it be possible for you to tell two stories for me? Short ones. Okay, short ones, but interesting ones, hopefully. One would be sort of the worst crisis that you dealt with as commissioner, and the other would be the moment when you have been most optimistic about the future of this league? Well, you know, I think the crisis one, I think would probably resonate with everybody here who's launching a business or running a business uh, or uh, trying to think about uh, how you deal with traumatic things that happen in your business. And uh, unfortunately, it'll be a little bit long. And I don't, Grant, I might have told you this, but 2000, 2001, you know, I was a young guy, and uh, our owners came together and said, you know, we, we need a five-year plan. And the president of the league was one of the founders, a guy named Mark Abbott, and I worked on that plan. We went to Phil Anschutz's ranch with a bunch of owners. We only had three or four at that time. And we said, uh, here's what it's going to cost you to continue to operate the league for five years. And I can't sit here today, even though I left a pretty good job, and I was kind of setting myself up to be out of work. 
we can't sort of see any reason why it's going to uh, make a lot of sense to do it if you're not going to dramatically change what you've done over the last number of years. We need to build stadiums. The league was operating three teams. We need to get out of those. The league can't operate teams. You can't have Mark Abbott as the general manager of teams playing against each other. Uh, and uh, we had a couple of struggling teams, like in uh, Miami, for example. At the same time, the World Cup had not been sold yet by FIFA. The TV rights. The TV rights. So we were concerned that the 2002 World Cup wouldn't even be on television. So we sat to them and said, here's plan A, put hundreds of millions of dollars into business as usual, or give us a lot of money to buy the World Cup rights, and we'll form a company, that company, Soccer Night of Marketing. And by the way, you, Phil, and you, Robert Kraft, and you, Lamar Hunt, you need to take over all these teams uh, and then give us this chance to figure out a way that we could relaunch. And uh, we went through uh, hard discussions that lasted a couple of months that led to us going through bankruptcy uh, discussions because it was a big ask for those guys. And that, you know, 30-day period where we were really trying to figure out whether we would go forward uh, ended with a lot of courage by a lot of people, including people in the league office, who knew that they'd either be working or not working at the end of this. And that was a real crisis. We folded teams. Uh, we had Phil Andrews owning six. That really was not a great way to sort of go forward as a league. By the way, he sold them all and made money on all those sales. So that also shows courage. Uh, so that was the crisis. We got out of it. That was many years ago. You know, the good moments, uh, Grant, I think it's probably no different from people here. You know, when you're running a business that's not yet what you want it to be, and you know that it's not yet achieving the big dream to be one of the top soccer leagues in the world, uh, I sleep with one eye open all the time. You know, there isn't a trip that I don't go on, which I'd probably rather be home, that I don't not only go on, but I go on two more trips uh, because we think that we're onto something. And every now and again, that happens. You know, seeing the TIFO, the big flag in Orlando, and seeing the stadium where their, their TIFO was, this is a gift from the gods. And having Aphrodite with a rainbow colors in her hair, that was sort of an inside reference to the uniqueness of what that team represents in that city. Uh, going to Portland every single time I go, including last Friday night, and seeing them sing the national anthem with no singer you know, chokes you up, it brings tears to your eyes. And then I get to Atlanta, and as I'm rushing to the game, and I see people, frats and fraternities at Georgia Tech, you know, partying on their lawn because they couldn't get into the sold-out Bobby Dodd Stadium. You know, you take a step back and say, you know what, that's pretty cool. Uh, and yet, just the other day, we canceled the game in New England because it's going to be five degrees with wind chill tonight. So every time something really great happens, you kind of take a step back and realize it's hard. Yeah. So good days and bad days. More good days than bad ones, though. I do remember, though. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. We're talking 05, 06, when uh, your league was starting to grow again. It had gotten down to 10 teams. But even the new teams that were coming in had expansion fees of like five, seven, you know, five million, 7.5 million. And here we are today. You've got 12 cities groups in 12 different cities lining up to pay $150 million expansion fees to get into this league. What changed? Was it, how much of it was the economy changing? How much of it was other stuff? 
Well, it's definitely not the economy changing, Grant. It's, it's the, the soccer nation is arriving. If not, it has arrived. And you could feel that by the panel before me or a bunch of European guys talking about how they're going to cash in on the value of soccer in America. So do we become international football's ATM, right? So, <laughs> which is kind of frustrating, actually. <laughs> not just for the revenue they take out, but the great... Christian Pelusics that end up uh, being taken out as well. Uh, so there, there's been a lot of value driven by uh, the fact that our fan base has grown and our media value has grown and the opportunity has grown. But a real life, and this is why these things are fun, uh, the best example of a, of a dramatic change was this morning. This morning I spoke at the U.S. Council of Mayors that the mayor of Austin hosted uh, at uh, 8 o'clock this morning. And there was a time not that long ago where I couldn't get a mayor to meet with me or take a call or let alone aggressively pursue uh, handing their card and saying, can we talk to you about bringing MLS to Louisville or bring MLS to Phoenix? Or I think there were four or five mayors of existing teams, including Buddy Dyer from Orlando and and Mayor Reed from Atlanta, and the mayor of, of uh, San Jose and Sacramento. There, there's a lot of MLS buzz in that room. But it's fair to say that I think they thought it was probably the highlight of their morning, because they're all talking about how soccer has been good for their community. And that they, they won't do that if it didn't matter to them. Putting expansion fees aside, expansion fees are a function of what is the value of diluting an existing owner forever. And most fans don't understand that. That's what it's about. You have national revenues. These are generational assets. And when you go from 10 owners to 22 owners and you have limited national revenues, guess what? You now have half as much money as you used to have and forever because we'll have more revenue, but we'll be sharing it. So there is a market value for what that's worth, and that's what an expansion fee is. So it is surprising to us that 12 teams bid. Uh, far cry from where we were. We didn't have 12 teams when we launched. We'll pick four of them, and that'll get us up to 28. So you're going to pick two of those teams later this year. This fall is kind of the current timeline, I understand. What are the factors that you and the current owners in the league look at when you're going to be deciding which two bids you choose this year from those 12? Well, again, it's, it's probably, it, it's no different on the two than the four, right? It, it, it is about committed owners. And sometimes fans get frustrated with that because in football, most teams are, are community assets. They're the Green Bay Packers. And I think at times the American soccer fan is frustrated that we don't have the structure that exists in the Premier League or exists in La Liga or I don't know, many are frustrated by what exists in Syria. I think we probably have a pretty good system compared to that. <laughs> but uh, when, you, when you think about owners making the kinds of financial commitments that are necessary to build stadiums, to support the, the, the signing of players that will attract attention with lots of competition. I was in Philadelphia on Monday visiting their academy. They've got 80 kids. Most of them are living in residence. All of them are going to school in their academies. I mean, that's just quantum leaps from where we were, and that's not an economically 
rational thing in the short term. It will be, we hope, in the long term. So it starts with owners. It then goes to, obviously, the market. I don't think there's a market of the 12 that have bid that would not be successful. That's not something I would have said four years ago, certainly not eight, 10, or 20 years ago. And then it's about the stadium. We've seen great success with downtown stadiums. Atlanta has 30,000 season tickets. That stadium was built with MLS in mind. The lower bowl was 30,000. Now you got to figure out who you're going to sell individual game tickets to and group tickets to. Uh, so that's a, that's a positive, but I think the stadium location has a lot to do with that. So owner, market, stadium location. We talked earlier about the U.S. potentially bidding for World Cup 26. Um, this is the global game, uh, more than any other by far. And I do want to ask you about the impact of the Trump administration coming in on your league, on your sport, on the potential World Cup bid. Um, just today, you have a player for Columbus, Justin Miram, who's a US citizen, but also an Iraqi citizen who plays for Iraq, turned down a call up to play for his national team in Iran. He's got his documentation solid, but he didn't want to deal with the hassle, so he's not joining his team. How do you approach dealing with this more than any sports commissioner in the U.S. has to deal with something like this? Well, um, you know, I think it starts with uh, it's, it's uh, easy to be impulsive. You know, I'm a citizen of this country and very much care about the future of this country for my children, for uh, my family, for my friends. Uh, so I have a personal view uh, that uh, at times, perhaps might be in counter to what kind of decisions and positions I'd have to take running a business that exists in many different states across the country, have owners that are across the political spectrum, but most importantly need the right kind of relationship with the U.S. government to manage the immigration rules that exist to have the most international player pool in professional sports. So our players on a P1 visa, like a actor or a musician, which is different than a number of the other visas that uh, foreign workers could have, say, in Silicon Valley. Uh, and we are very mindful of doing everything we can to protect the status of our foreign players and their rights to that visa. So that is going to have some impact as to how we go about managing all of this. And the first thing that you need to do is take a step back and understand it. You know, so the new law that uh, the, the White House is floating has not yet passed. It's changed from the first one. So I think for those who are pushing us to comment, I'm glad we didn't because the rules might be a little different today. Uh, it breaks my heart that Justin Muren decides he's not going to play for Iraq because he doesn't feel safe or he doesn't feel that he has the uh, flexibility to be able to capitalize on that opportunity. I hope that we could work with him and any other player that plays for their national team to assure that we can give him the ability to both play for his club and country. Uh, we have players that are playing for dozens and dozens of uh, international national teams, and we want them to be able to experience the benefit of both club and country. So a long way of answering, Grant, we've got to be careful, we've got to be smart, we've got to understand it, and as you would imagine, we're doing a lot of work to ensure that we have all the information we need uh, to be able to uh, operate effectively and properly. I've done a ton of interviews with you over the years, but I've never asked you these, this two-part question. Uh, what is the hardest part uh, of your job? What is the coolest part of your job? 
Well, I think about the hardest one all the time. That's an easy one to answer. While I'm talking, I'm going to have to think about the coolest part. The hardest one is that I'm the only sports commissioner that's not in charge of his sport or her sport. Um, and that is really hard. So I can't make the decisions on officiating the way I'd like to because there is a greater group that makes those decisions for us. That's really frustrating. Uh, we don't have the ability to uh, do what we want to do on the field or with our players and technology because a group in Zurich tells us we can't. And uh, if uh, Gary Bettman wants to change the rules of hockey and have guys do a, uh, put more officials on the ice, the easy one, he does it. He might have to deal with his players' union on things as it relates to the players. So the hardest part of the job is being part of this game that we are just a small piece of, but the, the long-term value of that is we're part of the beautiful game and one that's very influential in the world. But it, it is very hard. It's very frustrating. Uh, the coolest part is to be able to finally now be able to see the fruits of our labor and to finally think that after all this work, we're onto something that is beginning to deliver value for everyone. You know, I'll, I'll say this an interesting one because many people will be fans. Uh, I can't walk around in front of supporter sections. That's a good thing because commissioners shouldn't be there in front of the heart. The suits really should be doing what, what administrators do. The game is living in this viral uh, 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 dynamic where people love their clubs. I've seen uh, uh, player, uh, uh, fans who've tattooed their logos on their legs uh, and it, it means something to them and their teams mean something to them. It means something all, and up, up, all and up and down you know, from a little kid who dreams to want to play for the Philadelphia Union, the Columbus Crew, uh, to um, Ibrahimovic, who wants to play in our league, and a guy that's obviously a pretty you know, successful uh, soccer player. So those are, that's, that's pretty cool, Grant. It's a hell of a lot cooler than it was, because it used to not be that much fun. <laughs> <laughs> you Actually, it used to really suck, to be honest. <laughs> I was going to say, you actually enjoy getting booed by Red Bulls fans at the draft every year, right? Well, I don't get as booed as much as some other commissioners do. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, you gotta, if, if you're passionate about your club, you don't necessarily, you know, love the person who's making decisions. I'll tell you a cute one. When I, we do a lot of these fan rallies now. And they are fun. You know, I, that's probably the coolest part. Going to Sacramento and having thousands of people cheering, and I'll sing, you're cheering now, and you're going to be booing me if you ever get a team. And that's proven to be true. So <laughs> it's all right. You mentioned Zlatan Ibrahimovic doing very well for Man United this year. Uh, I report on Fox and Sports Illustrated this week that LA Galaxy has made an offer for Ibrahimovic to come this summer that would make him the highest paid player in MLS history. I'm not going to ask you to comment on whether that's true or not, because I know it's true. Um, <laughs> but hypothetically, what would it mean to have Ibrahimovic come to the league? Well, I honestly don't know that it's true. So I think you, the, the thing about Grant, this is going to make us some more fun here, right? It is. It's not like the typical thing you and I would do. Grant gets a lot of stuff. I'd say 50% of them are true, 25% of them are rumor, and then 25% of them are totally false. Ah. And this one, I, have no, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know that an offer has been made. I'm not being a wise guy. I, if you know, then you know something more than, more than I do. So the average age of the DPs that came in this year was 26. 
That's positive. That's not a league mandate. They've just decided that they'd rather have Giovinco than perhaps have Steven Gerrard. And as the league has evolved, the league can provide value to younger designated players as a place where they can not just come and play and have a great career, but one that could further their career. It frustrates me that Giovinco isn't viewed by the national team coach as somebody who can continue to play for the national team. And I'm pleased when Giovanni De Santos is the captain in the last uh, Mexican national team game. And there was a time when Giovanni and Jonathan DeSantos wouldn't talk to us. So that is another you know, real indicator of how things could change. I mean, I will t say this, um, and I, I might have mentioned this to you, I'm really not looking forward to what would happen if Ibrahimovic came in many ways, because I'm the guy that would have to find him if he did something which he's sure to do, you know, either what he says or what he does. But I've been convinced, you know, any news is good news, so it probably wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. You know, he's one of the top players in the world. I asked you earlier whether or not he's still one of the leading players in the scorers in the Premier League, and I think you said he is in, right near the top, in all competitions. So how exciting would it be? It would be unbelievable. Anybody who speaks about themselves in the third person all the time, it's going to be fun for all of us. So we'll see. Galaxy fan over there, probably be good for you. Now, anyone who chooses the Twitter handle of the soccer Don is also someone who I would like to ask about what went into that decision and how do you handle your social media as a commissioner? <laughs> so it does not have anything to do with the fact that I probably can recite every line from The Godfather. <laughs> It actually was a creative way. Dan Cordemont, who's our communications chief, they just thought it would be a fun thing. My name's Don, soccer guy, the soccer Don, and it's been turned into this uh, thing related to Tony uh, Soprano. It had nothing to do with that. Uh, I actually do engage on Twitter more so than I engage on Facebook. Um, it is for, and has been for many years. I don't know how long it's been. It's been a while, almost since it started. A good way to communicate directly with fans Somebody else has decided it's a good way for him to communicate with, uh, with all sorts of people in the, in the country, so it's proven to be true. Uh, I, I don't, um, and I follow you and hundreds and hundreds of other people. It is a news source for me, uh, and one that allows me to get a lot of information quickly from places that I uh, find important. Uh, it is a frustrating place to be public. Uh, I just had a deeply, deeply anti-Semitic mean that uh, was posted on Twitter that was one of the more disgusting things you could ever see, and that lives and still lives on Twitter. Uh, you have lots and lots of really bad things happening on uh, Twitter that we all know about and read about and hear about. Uh, that's not fun. Uh, our, uh, our communication group tracks the uh, customer service aspect of it, and we actually do. So if you send something in and there's somebody who's complaining about something, we have a process to be able to uh, uh, respond to that. Uh, we as a league index higher than any other league uh, with our fans' usage of social media. You'd expect that. We have the youngest fan base in professional sports and in the major leagues. Uh, we're active in trying to engage even more so with new emerging technologies. We have a technology and business development group we have more people who work in our social media department than work in our marketing department because they're sort of one and the same. So we have a brand group, but the folks that are managing all of our relationship with social media channels are deeply engaged and really, really focused on touching uh, and communicating our league, our club, with uh, our clubs, with uh, those 
young people who are using those platforms. Do you enjoy some of your players' Twitter feeds? Are you constantly worried about what they may say on their Twitter feeds? Well, How does that work? Interesting, Grant. I, I don't, I don't uh, look at them, uh, and I hope that they are as engaged as they could be. That's their personal uh, vehicle to be able to do what they want. Now, if they were to do something improper, they are an employee of a club. They are wearing the badge and representing their team and our league and representing soccer in America. So there is a fine line as a public figure uh, that they have to be mindful of. But I don't follow our players for that reason because I think that's their space. Uh, you know, Kaká's got six million followers and uh, or more. How many, Dan? 27 million. I got that one off by <laughs> 70%. So, you know, do our guys work with him on trying to get information out, particularly for an international uh, uh, following, I'm sure they do, but it's not something I would be mindful of. Okay. We're winding up here on my questions, so start getting your questions together in a couple of minutes. We'll have you set, uh, step forward. Uh, your current contract goes through the end of next year. You will have spent 20 years on the job by then. At one point a couple years ago, you told me that right around now you would sit down and determine whether you go beyond 20 years. Do you think you will? What do you think, Anthony? <laughs> uh, you know, I, as you know, Grant, I had a, you know, a very serious health issue for a number of years ago. So that kind of messes with your head to think about what impact does that have on, on how you're going to think about what you do for the rest of your life. Getting past that kind of changed my view uh, about, you know, sort of what I wanted to do uh, for the rest of my life dramatically. And then things really changed over the last number of years. I mean, I can't imagine not being around to see when we open up in LA with their downtown stadium or open up in DC or get our stadium in New York City or roll out our expansion team. So, uh, you know, it's a hard job. I tr travel 130 plus days a year. Uh, some of that's internationally. Uh, it, it's not an easy job. And as I mentioned, you're never really in charge. Uh, but, you know, I'll let my owners decide, but, you know. That was a thumbs up from continue. Anthony Precourt, the Columbus <laughs> crew owner, out in the uh, crowd there on uh, extending. So um, I want to wind up just by asking you, where do you see Major League Soccer as a league in 20 years? You know, I am 100% convinced that we'll be one of the top leagues in the world. Right now we're sixth or seventh in attendance. 100% convinced that if we could... Uh, even have uh, similar, if not even less, growth of what our entire uh, pyramid has been and what the entire landscape of soccer in North America is. We will be one of the top leagues in the world. We'll be a league of choice. The best players in the world are going to want to play here. Uh, our business will grow. Our fan base will grow. Our media value will grow. Uh, we are, you know, soccer. I, w I was at an investor conference at Bloomberg, and a sports banker, Morgan Stanley, was asked, what's the best investment in sports today? And he said, Major League Soccer. So 20 years from now, I think we'll be able to see what the, uh, the benefits are of all that uh, investment. Uh, and I also think that we, uh, we're going to get the player development thing right. Uh, all the academies that are going on now or the training facilities that are going on now, they haven't hit yet, but you're going to start seeing Giassi's artists uh, times 10 in 28 markets. And before you know it, we're going to build a culture on the men's side that already exists on the women's side 
of dominant full-time professional players at a young age, hopefully managing through together how that fits with their career, college career aspirations. And when that happens, it's going to be really special. That's going to happen in less than 20 years, in my opinion. I'm done here, but we got people lining up with questions, so you got the floor. I'll make this quick, Don. Good to see you. Um, I'd be remiss that if you came to our uh, lovely city, the largest one without a professional sports team, <laughs> that uh, considering the path of 28 teams being the sort of threshold, saying you're going to pick two teams this year, you've got 12 teams under consideration, what is the path for Austin as a possibility for either expansion or relocation as part of the consideration set if it's not part of the 12? Well, you know, the only thing I can answer is Austin as a city, uh, and it's a special place. And in many ways, it mirrors the, uh, the incredible value and dynamic that exists in soccer in America. It's what's driving MLS, this young, this diverse, this energetic, this tech-focused, tech this global, sort of globally connected group of people living in a city. We're saying that that's what we're trying to capture in our country. So it ought to be a pretty good MLS market. It, it's got a lot of time between now and delivering on what that might mean. Right. But uh, this is a special city, for sure. Good answer. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. Hi, my name is uh, Omar Drady, and I spent this past year with FIFA actually researching in Europe. And um, one of the things that I came across was the fact that the MLS is considered a little bit of a retirement league, where a lot of the professional players come at a very late stage, and now looking at China and what they're doing, how can you see the MLS getting more involved in the transfer market and trying to attract more of the younger talent? Well, in the last two years, the, the, the age of players coming in is, is in the, the mid to late 20s. So the challenge that you have when you live in a world where not everybody knows as much about the game is you, can, you bring in Frank Lampard, or you bring in Andrea Pirlo, or you bring in uh, uh, Gerard, and all of a sudden we're retirement league. Well, Beckham came here at 31. Right? 31 is the prime of his career. So we've got to change that perception by continuing to get younger and trying to sign world-class players in their prime. Atlanta has done that pretty effectively with three great national team players that come from South America. But it's a brand dynamic that we've, we've got to change. China's an entirely different story. I mean, it, it's obviously intriguing for all of us in the soccer business to see what's happening there. You know, I, I'd be a better question to answer as to what that mean is, means is if you ask me four years from now or eight years from now or 10 years from now, you know, we're in our second uh, iteration. We're in year 22, and the CSL is, uh, you know, in year three or four. So a lot, lot more needs to happen there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to ask a question. What are your thoughts on the legalization of sports betting in the United States? Commissioner Silva, um, Commissioner Manfred has softened his position, said we need to have another look at it. Um, Commissioner Silva has been very clear that his view is to bring it out of the darkness and into the open. Um, the English Premier League monetizes its data through Dataco. Um, soccer is one of the most better pond sports in the world, in regulated markets in the United yeah. Kingdom, as you know. What is your view? Well, we have a project going on now to really dig in deeply and understand it. So I'll be the third commissioner in and say, very open to understanding how we can uh, get more engaged in this market in a way that I think, if done properly, can be regulated. Uh, can be managed and controlled, and from our perspective, 
be, um, uh, a, allow us to connect with something that exists in every other soccer league around the world. Uh, we do sell our data globally. Uh, we are, uh, 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 MLS is actually betted on quite a bit internationally. Uh, and that surprised me when I found that out. Part of it is because everybody knows that you know, we don't have max, fishing, max fixing issues or the threats of those kinds of things, so there's an authenticity to it. But I'll be uh, I'll join the chorus of saying it's time to bring it out of the dark ages, and uh, we're doing what we can to figure out how to manage that effectively. Thank you. Hi. I have a question about the fan development and fan acquisition. I, I have years driving my kids uh, through the suburbs of Atlanta. Uh, for games on, on soccer leagues, and what I've noticed is there's thousands and thousands of families playing soccer every, every week and thousands and thousands of kids. But the other thing that I've noticed is that they, they do not, they love the sport, but they do not consume the product. They either do not watch the MLS, probably they'll start now because of, of, of the team, but they do not consume other leagues as well. So my question is, I think there is an opportunity of people who love the game but are not consuming the product. And my question is, what is the league and, and what are the plans to be able to capture on that opportunity? Well, you know, a lot of it, uh, you know, there's, a, there's math and science to it, and then there's time and uh, a specific strategy. So the best way to do it is have a team in Atlanta. So my guess is a year ago, there were no uh, Atlanta United fans, or three years ago, and now there's going to be lots of them. So you've got to have a team that people can identify with, that can give them the, the communal experience, that could have them believe in a brand and believe in players and do all those things that grow a fan base. So that's the, the, the obvious thing to do. An expansion, and the, some of the rationale expansion, is about that. You have to have teams for people to uh, cheer for. They don't care about a league. They care about a club, a player, and a brand. And then there's the science of it. The science is that we are deeply engaged in data collection. We have a fan panel of 20,000 fans who we communicate with several times a week on things that we are curious about. And that fan panel is a subset of a much large, larger data set. We're collecting data in ways that, that are almost uh, unending because they're coming in in every touch point that we have with a consumer. And then we're communicating back with them because they're opting in and allowing us to try to convince them or convert them into being an MLS fan or a team fan. Thank you. Hi, how's it going? Um, I was just curious what your thoughts were on US soccer's uh, mandate that players stand during the national anthem. I'm sorry. Uh, I was just curious what your thoughts were on US soccer's mandate that players stand during the national anthem. Uh, well, that was one I didn't expect. <laughs> Yeah, this is going to be the headline coming out of this one. Right? <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I, I am on the, the, uh, the U.S. soccer board. I participated in that debate. And I felt, along with the rest of the board, very strongly uh, that uh, we believe in, as, as the laws permit, and as every American has in their heart, in the freedom of expression. And if a, uh, somebody wants to, uh, for an MLS team, not stand for the national an anthem, uh, they should be permitted uh, to express their views any way they want. But when you're getting a call up to play for your country, and you are wearing your flag on your chest, and there are 
dozens and dozens of other folks who want that honor, that you should be required to honor your country and respect the national anthem. And uh, that, that debate was not a difficult one, uh, that uh, you don't have to take that call up. Uh, one of the guiding uh, principles here was uh, if you are called into uh, a U.S. Olympic team and you win a medal, you're required to honor the flag during the national anthem. And everybody does. And that moment on NBC when those flags are going up and that player is standing for their country and recognizing all of the work for their lifetime that went into put that gold medal around their neck, that's a special moment, not just for that athlete, but for our entire country. So I do support the, uh, the board uh, mandate or the, the board bylaw uh, that was passed last week. Great, appreciate it. Good afternoon, my name is Elizabeth Cooper. I'm from Boston, a soccer mom, and I've got two kids who um, play. I also coach. We've been to several Revs games, and I think you do a fantastic job of getting the kids engaged. We do a lot of the tailgating before the games. The kids go out in the field. They play three-on-three -three ball out there. It's, it's a lot of fun. My question is, what other activities do you see um, to bring girls and boys into the game as fans and players young and keep them engaged and excited about the game? Well, on the grassroots side, that's a, an ecosystem that exists on its own and in a very small microcosm of that ecosystem are the MLS academies. Uh, on the fan side, it falls to every club, into our marketing group, into our social media group, into our data group, uh, and fan development enterprise to try to convince that kid, boy or girl, that uh, they should follow, be a fan. You know, I can remember when I first came into this thinking that this was about converting all sorts of kids who were playing the game into going to games with their families. And we realized that it's really not about that. It's about when those kids grow up and they've grown up with the game, now they recognize how important the game has been in their lives and we have to deliver them something valuable, some, some desire to be like that player or a club that might uh, go for the championship or a great stadium. And uh, on the marketing, branding, fan development, all the things that you'd expect businesses to do to grow customers, we spend a great deal of time on those kinds of activities. It's the largest budget spend that we have outside of players. Excellent, thank you. Hi there. <laughs> Hi, um, shout out minutes. to Houston. I used to work there, um, so please tell them hello. I wanted to get ask you about expansion and what your response is to people who say that we're expanding too fast and diluting the talent pool in our country. You know, good question. And uh, I get asked that question a lot, as I'm you'd sure imagine. You <laughs> uh, the, the only good thing about being part of uh, a, a global league that you're not in uh, business, you're not in charge of, is that you're in the global business itself. And there are tens of thousands of soccer players from all over the world who could be part of our player pool. So if the NFL expands, it's a closed market. Mm -hmm. There are only a certain number of football players. The best ones are playing for the NFL. You add two more teams, you just have to share all those great players with two more teams. All we need to do is go out and 
develop more players in our academies or go out and sign more international players. So I think everybody who follows our league would know the quality has gone up, mm -hmm. even with lots of expansion. So I don't worry as much about diluting the product. I do worry about distraction. Are we capable of managing growth? Something that everybody is thinking about as they're managing emerging businesses or taking a business from 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0. And that is something that is, um, uh, we're very mindful of. Where do we get the next number of general managers? Where do we get the next coaches from? Where do we get the next uh, chief, what we call chief business officers, all the way down to ticket sellers and marketing people? And uh, that market is not as broad. And that is something that we uh, have to be very careful about. Thank you. I had the opportunity to hear you speak at the National Coaches Convention in Los Angeles a few months back. And uh, I was there with my 19-year-old son, who uh, at the age of four had aspirations of playing at the professional level and tore his ACL three times uh, at the age of eight, 19, he had to retire from playing the game. Um, but now has aspirations of coaching in the MLS. And so as it relates to developing coaches uh, in some kind of a framework of player development as well, is there any thinking that's going into that? I know you brought Fred Lipko over from uh, France to work on the youth development side. My son has met him and has aspirations to try and yeah. get into coaching uh, here in the United States and be developed by well, great coaches. Well, you know, coaches. I think the, at the youth level, it's a, good, it's a good question, a little like an inside soccer yeah. question, right? Yeah, right? U.S. soccer has just launched a whole coaching uh, complex. It's actually connected to Sporting Kansas City's new training ground, and it's a 50 or $60 million project uh, that will be a coaching center for our federation. And they're hiring staff, and they understand that the only way we're going to have better players is if we have better coaches. So again, inside soccer, we realized our academies were not producing enough players because the coaches of the kids weren't good enough. So we went to the French Football Federation, which is uh, viewed as the best and has done a great job developing the Henri's and Drogba's and uh, of the world, and we sent all of our academy coaches in a mandatory way out to France to get certified. And then U.S. Soccer, in a parallel way, is raising the uh, standard for licenses, even for MLS coaches. We had 13 MLS coaches in the offseason who had to get their A license, and I, they didn't have them. Right. So coaching is, uh, is an, a really, really, really important part of developing the game, you know, and I was coaching my little kids in kinder kickers. I knew nothing about the game, and I was coaching eight-year-olds. And that's not what's happening in Barcelona, yep. you know? <laughs> I assure you of that. Correct. <laughs> thank you. Right. I think our time's up, but thank you so much for coming. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Don Garber as well as everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with Brian Strauss, Marc-Andre Terstegen, Yvonne Rakitic, and Kyle Martino. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, and review it on iTunes. It really does help the cause if you do. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? 
Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.